I'd like to talk this evening about discovering a wise relationship to fear. And to start, I'd just like to ask each of us to reflect for a moment on whether there's ever been a time in our life as adults when we felt free of the influence of fear for a short period of time. And what did that feel like? Blissful, free, spacious, serene, natural. Sleep. It was actually a statement that I heard from uh, Manindraji, who was one of Joseph Goldstein's uh, first teachers, who said that sleep is the ordinary person's greatest pleasure. (laughs) Maybe because of that freedom. So there's a wonderful quality in our life in the absence of fear. There's a really delightful quality. And I think that sort of serves to show by contrast the sort of shadow that's in our life when fear is present. How fear kind of casts this cloud of darkness over our being, over our mind, over our life, over ourselves, even when many of our fears are really unnecessary or unfounded. And really, it's the whole range of fears that we react to. You know, we react to really little fears like do I have enough gas to get home? Is there haagen still left in the freezer? <laughs> How can I do this seminar when I have a run in my stocking? <laughs> Things like that. Then there's sort of the middling levels of fear. Things like the fear of public speaking. And uh, someone took a poll a few years ago and found out that the, sp- the fear of speaking in public was actually the number one fear of this random sampling of Americans who were surveyed. The number one fear in this country was fear of speaking in public. Fear of death was somewhere down on the list like number four. Personally, I'd rather be here tonight. But uh, The fears that come up, for instance, around job interviews. Ever feel your stomach sort of turn to jelly before you're going for a job that you really want? or fear of confrontation with a coworker or a manager. And then, of course, there are the really big fears, the significant fears that we confront in our life. The fear of serious illness, the fear of loneliness, the fear of death, our own or of those we love. One of the greatest fears, I think, that adults have probably is the fear of harm to their children. And these are real fears, in a way. Fear is really one of our deepest psychological conditionings. It's such a strong force for most of us. And when it's present, not only does it cast this sort of dark, oppressive cloud, but it actually brings about a contraction that we feel in the body and in the mind that blocks our unfolding. When Jesus talked about not hiding your light under a basket, The basket most of us hide our lights under is the basket of fear. Fear keeps us constrained and small and tiny, and it doesn't allow our inner beauty really to come out and flower. And so that flowering begins to take place as fear lifts, as this contraction starts to unfold for each of us. It's really the pathway to love. Gerald Jampolsky is a a teacher and healer that many of you probably know or know of, created a Center for Attitudinal Healing, and a lot of his work was inspired by A Course in Miracles. And he wrote a book that was sort of his interpretation of A Course in Miracles titled, very suggestively, Love is Letting Go of Fear. And there's a deep truth in that. When the cloud of fear lifts from our being, we find ourselves automatically in the state of love. It's not like we have to get rid of fear and then find love. Love is the natural state when the mind is not clouded by fear. So this is really a key to our opening, a key to to spiritual unfolding, is being able to work with fear. Fear is also closely tied to some other root emotions. We talked last week in working with anger, how sometimes underlying anger can be the fear that I don't exist. 
When you don't acknowledge my existence, I am start to become afraid that maybe I'm not visible in this world. Maybe I don't exist. And so that seed of fear triggers aggression and triggers hatred and triggers acts of unkindness and war and revenge. It's also closely related to desire. If you look at the way our minds move and what disturbs our peacefulness, typically the mind swings between two poles, wanting what we like and not wanting what we don't like. And this movement we call desire, and this movement we call fear. And they're really closely tied. And you'll notice that any time you really want something very much, very badly, if you look underneath, there's a fear of not getting it. So fear always accompanies wanting. And at the same time, if you look at why we want a lot of the stuff that we do, it's based on insecurity. And this is really a key in looking with fear. We really have to acknowledge that as human beings, the situation of our lives is uncertain. Nobody is guaranteed security on this earth. Any of us could die as we drive out of Spirit Rock tonight. Any of us could wake up in the morning feeling ill and find that we are in touch with the beginning of an illness that will take us directly to our death. That can happen to any of us at any moment, young or old. And so for us as human beings, life is inherently uncertain. That is a fact. That's the truth. And recognizing this inherent uncertainty we tend to look around the world, all around the world, for something to make us feel safe, something to bring that security back. And so we tend to latch on very early on to our parents, later on to friends, partners, and significant others. We tend to find our security with possessions, with money, with status, with a job title. We tend to find some security in a self-image that we believe ourselves to be a certain way and that that lasts over time and that seems to give us something to fall back on. We find security in views and opinions. I believe the world is like this. I don't believe the world is like that. And to each of those areas we cling to some extent. One of our greatest forms of clinging is to the body itself. That as long as the body is somewhat healthy and reliable, we feel safe. And yet that can be jeopardized in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. So in under, coming to understand fear, we need to look into the nature of clinging and the effect of clinging. If I'm afraid, if I feel my vulnerability in this world, and out of fear I pick up something that makes me feel secure, what happens as long as I hold on to that thing? Look what we're perpetuating. As long as I'm holding on to something, on some level I know that that thing I'm holding on to is itself precarious. Whether it be another person or possessions or a big bank account or whatever, anything that we hold on to is also subject to impermanence. And so somehow we know that this thing can pass away. And so in holding on, we are afraid to lose this because if we lose it, we think the fear will return. So as long as we hold on, there's actually a fear involved even in clinging because on some level we know that this can pass. So in holding on, in the very act of holding to something for security, we're also perpetuating fear. So it doesn't turn out to be the satisfying answer. It doesn't turn out to be a final answer either. So fear and clinging really go together. They're intimately connected. And one of the useful things about fear is that whenever we feel fear, we can use it as a pointer and say, well, what is being held to? And we're all holding in many different ways. Actually, as long as there's a sense of a separate self, there is some clinging going on. The sense of separate self or the sense of I or ego in Buddhist terms is formed by holding. These two are virtually synonymous in Buddhist thought, the sense of I and the sense of holding. 
So as long as there is a sense of I, on some level there is the operation of fear. And the only freedom, final freedom from fear, comes with letting go of this sense of a separate self, realizing our deep, deep connection to the whole universe. The Buddha put this very succinctly when he said that wherever there is clinging, there is trembling in the mind. And this image of trembling or wavering is one that he used over and over again to pinpoint the location of fear. Ah, in one who is holding, the mind is not steady. The mind is shaky. There's trembling. So one of the things we want to come to understand with fear are the mechanics of it. How is it triggered? How does it really operate? One of the things that we noticed in doing the short guided meditation this evening on fear is that fear is always connected to some thought about the future. And it's important to see the arising of the thought and then the emotion that trails in its wake, as it were. There's some thought about the future that we don't like, and then fear comes, that emotion of fear. This has been compared in the uh, Zen tradition to an artist who draws a painting of a tiger, very lifelike painting of a tiger, and when he's done drawing it, he steps back and looks at it, (gasps) and he becomes frightened. And that's what we do in our minds all the time. We draw these pictures of tigers, and they're like, how scary. That's why Mark Twain says, the worst things in my life never happened. Krishnamurti, this great Indian philosopher, put it very succinctly when he said that thought breeds fear. Thought breeds fear. And this is kind of a good pointer because what it means is that life is not inherently frightening. Life is not frightening. Life may be uncertain. It may be unpredictable. There may be an element of the unknown or an insecurity inherent in life, but it doesn't mean that we have to relate to it with fear. Fear is the product of thought projecting into the future a fantasy of its own making, of its own creation. So we can learn through our meditation practice to start to relate wisely to this projective quality of mind. Our mind has incredible projective strength. We actually, when we start to look closely, we project out of our thoughts and imaginings the whole structure of the world. And that includes the structure of what we take to be myself. It's all a fabrication of our concepts. In meditation, more and more we can let go of that unnecessary addition and just rest directly with the bare experience of the present moment. And that is a pathway to freedom. Just resting with the natural state of things as they are just in this moment without introducing past and future. Then fear doesn't find a foothold. And we're simply at ease just as things are unfolding here and now. So how can we work to start to relate wisely with fear. Well, the first thing to say is it's our tendency really to want to avoid situations that bring fear up. We don't like the experience of fear. And so in our lives, we tend to weave a path through life so that this emotion doesn't arise very often. You know, for the most part, if we could live our lives and have it never arise again, that would really be ideal for most of us. And fortunately, it doesn't work that way. can't work that way. So if we just keep avoiding difficult situations that bring up fear, actually we only strengthen its conditioning. It strengthens that groove in the mind that says fear is really something to be avoided. Because actually it's not. It's just a paper tiger. And we need to come to terms with that paper tiger through our practice. If we take the risk to start to explore fear, then we may find a way to go beyond it. This is a time-honored tradition in uh, Buddhist practice, this experience of confronting fear. From the very early days of the Buddha's teachings, he would often direct his nuns and monks to go do their practice in the charnel grounds, 
in places where bodies had just been left out in the open for animals to feed off of them, for birds to peck them for sustenance. And it was considered a very, very uh, great uh, place to meditate because it would bring up fear for people. It brings up the fear of our own mortality when we see other bodies decaying. Great meditation practice. Ajahn Chah's teacher... Ajahn Chah's teacher was a very fierce uh, monk in the forest teacher named Ajahn Mun. Ajahn Chah, for those of you who don't know, was Jack Kornfield's first teacher in Thailand. Passed away uh, a number of years ago. But his teacher was Ajahn Mun, who was born in the early part of the 1900s and was a forest monk, very ascetic. When Ajahn Mun's monks or nuns had malaria, which is a dreadful disease. If you've ever had malaria, you get racked with this fever that's over 100 degrees, chills and shaking. It's extremely unpleasant. All you want to do is curl up and wait till it passes. Ajahn Mun would make his monks and nuns meditate a full schedule in the day, even with malaria. So it's just sensation. Don't worry. Keep sitting. He was very fierce. Well, one of the things that he loved to encourage particularly his monks to do, was to go sit out in the forest where they could hear the sounds of tigers roaring. In the early part of the century in Thailand, that was not hard to find. You go out in the forest, sit down for a while, and you could hear tigers roaring. And the closer, the better. <laughs> so this was, this was serious advice. He would make people sit out where there were tigers nearby and meditate all night long just sitting out in the forest. And that brought the fear right to the surface. None of this five-minute imagining of some (laughs) visualized situation. (laughs) So this direct confrontation with fear, even though it's the last thing we want to experience, is actually a blessing in our practice. Because as we start to understand fear and relate to it directly with wisdom, there's the possibility of going beyond it, the possibility of not being so limited by fear. So in our meditation practice, we really want to open to this experience, not to brush it aside and say, oh, that's just anxiety, let me get back to a place of calmness, but really to take the opportunity to see, oh, anxiety, oh, nervousness, oh, fear, trembling, panic. Let me taste this. Let me see what this is like. So we start to explore how does it feel in the body. And for each of us, the sensations may be a little bit different. We all have our individual physical reaction with fear. But starting to become familiar, what is it in my experience? Where do I feel this fear in the body? And as several of you commented earlier, it can be in many places. can feel a tightening in the neck, constriction around the heart, uh, tightness in the abdomen, maybe a, a sweating under the arms. What I find sometimes with fear is that I get a sense of flutteriness all over my body. My body becomes very light. And it's as though a breeze could blow me away because it's become so soft and shaky. Are there any of those sensations that you can't tolerate? Look closely at those sensations and see if you can just accept them and meet them just as they are. Then we look into the feeling tone in the mind. And again, as several of you commented, there's this sense of wanting to escape, wanting to flee, a panic sense of being trapped. And I think that kind of characterizes for me the the sense of fear is that I just want to move away. It's a sense of wanting to move away from something. If we look closely at what we want to move away from, sometimes it's just fear itself. We become afraid of fear itself, and that's what we want to flee. So just noting that sort of tone in the mind. Can we tolerate that? Can we bear that emotion of feeling like we want to run away, feeling like we want to flee? And finally, the influence of thoughts. Noticing, and this is a really important insight, that fear is always related to thoughts of the future. Because what that says is, the present isn't so bad. 
It's not the present that we're really concerned about. It's not this moment. It's the next moment. What might come after this? So if we can just take our pointer from that, don't worry so much about the present. Come to rest about the future, sorry. Don't worry so much about the future. Come back to the refuge of the present moment. Then that's where we can find some sense of ease, some sense of rest. So these are the three components, again, as we looked at with anger, that we want to become familiar with. The sensations in the body, the mental tone or emotion, and the influence of thoughts. And of course, the more thoughts about the future we think that are difficult, the greater the stimulation of the fear is likely to be. So the fear breeds the thoughts, and the thoughts in turn react to create greater fear. The comment was that fear may be related to the past. And I think that's very true. Often our sense of the future is connected with the past. And particularly if there's been a trauma in the past, it may have left a sense of fear. So there are actually two issues here. It's a good point. If there's been kind of a trauma in the past, let's take the case of of a young child who's undergoing physical abuse as an example of kind of severe trauma. The child is fearful in that state, perhaps, of being killed. And so the emotion of fear gets um, locked in at that moment because the child doesn't know how to relate to the fear with wisdom. It gets locked into the body through the contraction of fear. And we experience it as adults once we start to open to our body sensations, to our memories, to our thoughts, and so forth. So there can be a residue of fear that's come from the past. But the nature of fear itself, whether it's what the child felt at that time, or what we imagine as adults, is related to a fear of what's going to happen. The fear that if this abuse continues, I'll be killed. Sometimes we take the past and project it into the future. Oh, I was rejected by uh, my parents in the past. Therefore, I'm not lovable. I will be rejected again. So often the past leads through the present into the future. But this is something uh, worthwhile to investigate. See that relationship of the future with fear. So we look at all these components and we ask, can I be with the bare experience of fear? Because mostly what happens when fear arises, we feel more afraid. We don't want to experience the fear directly, but we lock into a feedback loop with fear. The first fear wave of fear makes us more afraid and the fear amplifies and we search for some escape. And so we never come to understand the experience of fear as it is. And it's the experience and acceptance of fear as it is just in this moment that is freeing. Because we start to see, I can, I can tolerate these body sensations. I can tolerate this panicky sense of being trapped or wanting to flee. I can tolerate these thoughts, these imageries about the future. I can tolerate all of that. So in our meditation practice, we don't try to get rid of the fear. We don't try to push it away or suppress it. We open to it and see if we can really accept it. And if we can really open to the fear and accept it, what we've done is we've made our home, we've found our refuge again in the present moment. And there is an ease and a sense of safety in that. So in a sense, what's required at this point is that we take our, our focus off the future. To some extent, we have to be willing a little bit not to be so concerned about what might happen tomorrow in my job interview. We need to be more interested in what's happening right now. And how can I relate to this moment of my experience with wisdom? and discover my freedom in relation to this moment, just as it is, this moment of fear. It's a little bit like that statement of FDR's, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. I'd give him about 70% from a Dharma perspective on that. But uh, it's a pointer anyway. For a politician, it's a pretty good Dharma talk. 
So actually having fear come up in our meditation practice or any time in our life when we can give our full attention to it is actually a blessing. Because it's only through this intimate contact with fear that we can start to understand it. In understanding it, we can open to it and accept it. And in accepting it, fear starts to lose its power. We no longer have to stop doing things because we think we're going to feel fear when we do them. You know, when you think about trying to meet somebody new or asking a a new person to do something with you, and there's this momentary hesitation of fear, how much of it is because we don't want to go through the anxiety or the discomfort that that action brings up in us? A real space of freedom and spaciousness opens when we're willing to experience the fear around our actions. We can go ahead, so what if I feel afraid or nervous doing that? I can handle that. I know this guy fear. I've accommodated it. I've understood it. I can let it be there and I don't need to let it change my actions. So in accommodating fear, we actually create a lot of space around it. And it no longer uh, has such a power to dominate and control and rule our lives in that way. And with that spaciousness, we can act more from clarity. You know, one of the worst things about fear is we're such fools when we act from fear. We do such stupid things, all of us, me included, when we're afraid. You know, we snap at people, we get defensive, we project onto people. Developing through meditation some spaciousness around fear, we can let the fear be there and not be so shaken by it and act somewhat from clarity, somewhat from wisdom. So you'll notice sort of a common theme in relating to fear as in relating to anger, as we talked about last week. And the guidelines for both of them really are to embrace the feeling and guard the action. Really open fully to the feeling, whether it be anger or fear, let yourself feel it directly, and take some care with how you act. Because if you act directly out of just a reactive state, being controlled by the emotion, to some degree you'll be strengthening its conditioning. The more awareness you can bring into your actions, even while you're feeling the feeling, the more you'll decondition the arising of that emotion. And that's another step toward greater freedom from it. There's another approach with fear that I want to mention. I'm always a little reluctant to go into it uh, because it's a really different approach than our sort of usual Vipassana, you know, be spacious, be accepting, open up, be gentle. And this approach with fear um, involves uh, quite a lot of firmness. It's an approach you might call getting tough with fear. And sometimes in your practice, in your life, or wherever, you might just reach a point where you just feel you've had enough of fear. You know, you just realize that fear has been influencing you, you've been under its sway, it's been going on long enough, and you just say, I'm fed up with this stuff. In uh, some of the Chinese uh, Buddhist practices, they talk about the practice of the host and the guest. And uh, it's as though the emotions that visit us, the experiences in our practice are the guests, but we take the seat as the host. And when a guest has lingered too long at the table, sometimes we have to show them the door firmly, sometimes not even courteously. Well, this came up for me also um, in my practice, in the early years of my practice. I'll ask again, are there any uh, children here tonight? (laughs) Any kids under 16? Okay, so we'll have the R-rated version again. I was practicing in England. I was on a month-long retreat. And um, I think I've mentioned before here on Monday nights that I had a residue of kind of anxiety and, and uh, fear coming out of a lot of, uh, uh, sort of psychedelic experiences of the 60s. And this started to um, uh, bubble up from my uh, practice and express itself very, very clearly during this retreat. And I got into a place where fear was arising really strongly for me. And it wasn't connected with anything I could put a finger on. I was just going through my days, sitting and walking in this retreat, and I was just 
experiencing a lot of fear. And this, again, is, as Cecile mentioned, is kind of the, um, the subconscious releasing what has been held uh, perhaps over years. It was a part of the clearing and healing process of the practice. And I was aware of that, but it still was very uncomfortable. So a day went by and I just kept going, open to it, accept it, relax, be gentle, it's okay. Didn't budge an inch. Didn't budge an inch. Second day went by, no change. The fear was still coming really strongly. And I was starting to get really frustrated with it because it was intense. I felt, as someone mentioned earlier, that my skin was kind of crawling with fear. I felt my brain was crawling with fear. And it just wouldn't stop. You know, it had gone on for about two and a half days at this point. And I was outside and I was doing some standing meditation just before lunch. I remember this episode very clearly. I was standing, and I think there's a, a reason that this happened during standing meditation. And I had gotten so fed up with the fear, I got really pissed off. I don't care if I die from this fear. I'd rather die than live like this. And I was really angry. And at that point, the fear broke. It just broke the spell of it. And I could feel it start to drain down my spine and all the way down my legs and into the ground. It just drained out. And I was left with this really angry, fierce energy. (laughs) So I sat the rest of the day. I was still very energized, but I was really angry. And this was actually a turning point for me in my relating to fear. It really broke somehow the power of fear for me. And anger can actually be a really useful response to fear. As we mentioned last week, anger can be useful when it's um, breaking through the veil of oppression, either external oppression from societal reasons or inner oppression, such as fear and, and depression. And so this was a useful breakthrough for me you actually find this kind of attitude cultivated in a lot of spiritual traditions, this really strong and firm stand in the face of fear. If you've read the Don Juan books by Carlos Castaneda, Don Juan's always talking about the way of the warrior and how important it is to take a warrior's attitude um, toward the things that come up. He says, only as a warrior can one survive the path of knowledge. Because the art of a warrior is to balance the terror of being a human with the wonder of being a human. The Buddha said that when he was practicing, before he became awakened, in the six years of his intensive meditation practice, he said whenever fear arose, he made a resolve that in whatever posture it arose in, he would not change his posture until the fear had passed. So if it arose when he was sitting, he would continue to sit until the fear passed or he would continue to walk, or he would continue to stand, or he would continue with his lying down meditation. He would not change his posture until the fear passed. Of course, you have to remember, this is the same man who vowed that he would die under the Bodhi tree if he didn't get enlightened. So, extraordinary courage there to begin with. There's this um, quite wonderful story of a modern uh, encounter with a Japanese Zen teacher written by a guy named Lawrence Shainberg. He's just uh, published a book called Ambivalent Zen. And it tells about his uh, studentship under a Japanese Zen teacher in New York City. And uh, it was in the, it was an excerpt from it was in the Sun magazine uh, last month. And the book is also available. And uh, this Zen teacher is very innocent, idiosyncratic, as a lot of Zen teachers are. And he has his own approach to the English language, uh, which is often charming. And uh, Lawrence would um, often be, he said he often began sentences to his teacher with the phrase, um, I'm worried that blah, 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 or I'm afraid that blah, blah, blah. And this was his teacher's response one time. He said, Larry son. Why are you always afraid? 45 years old, talk like baby. (laughs) What do you think? Zen about quiet mind? Relaxation? No, no. Zen about bravery. Zazen mind, bravery mind. Must bravery, Larry-san. Must sincere. (laughs) 
Must bravery. That's good advice for all of us. Must bravery. Sasaki Roshi is another uh, great Zen master. I think I've mentioned him before. He's in the Rinzai tradition of Zen, which is the fierce, warrior-like Zen tradition. And he wrote in a book once, uh, in, in his retreats you meet with him for an interview four times a day. And you're supposed to answer these koans, which are very puzzling and uh, stumping. And I, I felt like a fool meeting with him every time. I didn't want to go. But he said, uh, you know, that's, don't be cowardly. He said, when you come for an interview with me, prepare to kill or be killed. <laughs> so, bravery mind. Vipassana teacher interviews are not like that. <laughs> That's how I survived in this practice. Okay, I'll just close with uh, a statement from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche in a lovely little book called Shambhala about working with fear and working with fearlessness. And sometimes we think that fearlessness is the opposite of fear, that fearlessness comes when fear has gone away, But Trungpa says it's not like that. He says fearlessness is really the state of being able to be open to our fear. True fearlessness is not the reduction of fear, but going beyond fear. When we relax with our fear, we find sadness, which is calm and gentle. This sadness comes because your heart is completely exposed. There is no skin or tissue covering it. It is pure, raw meat. Real fearlessness is the product of tenderness. It comes from letting the world tickle your heart, your raw and beautiful heart. You are willing to open up without any resistance or shyness and face the world. You are willing to share your heart with others. So, we have a few minutes left if anyone has any uh, comments about fear, anything you'd like to share, any questions, anything you'd like to talk about. Please. Hi. Yes, please. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It's the correct thing mm-hmm. to sit and to make. Mm, good point. So, you know, like, how do you know those things? Yes. Good, good questions. First comment is that sometimes fear is very close to excitement. And I think that's true, that um, sometimes something that's about to happen, um, we have actually mixed feelings about, and that's kind of the mind going, you know, a little bit, it's sort of going between success and failure. Oh, is this going to be great, or am I going to fall on my face? And sometimes we have both reactions to the same situation. It's interesting to start to look at excitement, too, from a meditative frame of mind. You know, when you really encompass either fear or excitement with a very spacious meditative mind, you see that both are just energy. And kind of the way the energy gets colored has a lot to do with our thoughts or our beliefs. So when we can relate to it just on the level of energy, it takes a lot of the added charge away from it. And again, it returns us to kind of a sense of freedom. So I think, they, you're, I think you're right. They are really close at times. Um, the second comment... I'm sorry, could you restate? It's sometimes I've been in situations where my whole body is starting to right. shake. Right. I have discovered that that was telling me that I was in a bad situation. Yes, yeah. Sometimes it's absolutely true that situations are... Uh, not safe, and we need to respect that feeling of not being safe. And um, sometimes fear is a good pointer to us that we need to move away. And that's, that's, that's wisdom. That's really seeing uh, what's skillful in a certain situation. And the, the encouragement to confront our fear isn't actually an encouragement to put ourselves in situations where our, our life is actually in jeopardy or... Um, something really unfortunate might happen to us or those that we care about. So we really want to use um, discriminating wisdom to know when to move away. I think it's not, there's no rule of thumb 
you know, to tell when you want to avoid those situations and when you want to hang out. <laughs> I think you have to kind of make an appraisal of the kind of seriousness of the threat. You know, you don't want to walk in certain parts of New York City after dark alone. That's just a reasonable precaution. Um, but you also don't want to do things that will be wholesome in your life because of the factor of fear. So we just have to find that balance. I don't think there's a formula. Thanks. Yes. I think that what I think that woman up here in front said about fear coming from the past, mm-hmm. what you just said that uh, uh, past experience will many times generate a, mm-hmm. a very skillful uh, <laughs> avoidance mm-hmm. of something, even though mm-hmm. you have the uh, uh, you know even uh, even though you're you're trying desperately to get rid of your fear, it's something mm-hmm. better better place to go. Yes. I have a when you were talking about recalling fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was thinking that about 98% of the fears that I've had in my life have mm-hmm. been apprehension, mm-hmm. things that I thought were going to, and very few mm-hmm. of those have, have turned out to be what I thought they were going mm-hmm. to be. And so when you try and recall something that you were afraid of mm-hmm. in, the, you know, in, the, uh, in the past tense, you know what it was, and now you're no, you're no longer afraid of it. Mm-hmm. And so it's difficult to recall fearsome mm-hmm. things that, mm-hmm. unless they unless they really were a fearsome thing, but by mm-hmm. that time it's 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 sort of academic. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. So uh, it's not like anger, which you can remember forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're trying to try and put it aside and say, well, see, it wasn't so bad after all, right? Yeah. And so it's hard to hard to bring back fear. Or mm-hmm. hard to Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's true. You know, sometimes, um, well, in my experience, um, the 20s and 30s were a time for me of a lot more anxiety than my 40s have been. And when I kind of look back to all the fluctuations that my mind went through in my 20s and 30s, I sort of go, what was the point of all that? <laughs> you know, everything turned out just fine. But when we're younger, we don't know, you know, it's going to have a happy ending. Um, if you want to kind of cultivate fear, um, you know, it may be necessary to think about things that have yet to happen. <laughs> only, only for the purpose of the practice. Sometimes I, I, I say with meditations like this, it's like those TV commercials that say, you know, filmed on a closed course with professional drivers, don't try this at home. <laughs> These meditations on fear and anger are not really meant to be done at home a lot. You know, it's just kind of to get in touch with the sensation. Other questions, please. Uh, actually, I, I I was wondering about the whole notion of avoidance because in the past, when I've I have a, I, I I'm in a, a fearful situation, mm-hmm. I I realize oh my I'm feeling fearful. And then it's so the fear is so unpalatable mm-hmm. that what I do is I just force myself through the fear mm-hmm. and do what I need to do to get mm-hmm. through it. Mm-hmm. Which, in a way, it's mm-hmm. kind of avoiding. I mean, it's mm-hmm. going through the mm-hmm. fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other side of the mm-hmm. experience, I feel mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. But really, it's almost like I'm I I I just don't want the fear because mm-hmm. it's so unpalatable yes. that I go through it. So it, I'm not sure if that's avoiding it. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, it's, it's mm-hmm. avoiding it because mm-hmm. I don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So I just go through it. Yeah. The comment was that sometimes uh, fear arises, the experience is so unpalatable, and we act really quickly to get to the other side, to complete the situation, True. to get to the other side of the fear. And I think that happens all the time in the world. Yes. You know, Something comes up that we have to do, it doesn't feel comfortable, we sort of plow ahead and we do find ways to kind of block out the experience of fear by focusing on what has to be done. And it serves to get us through the situation in the world. But I think it is a a kind of avoidance of the fear itself. Sometimes in the world we just have to do that. You know, sometimes if... You know, you have to make a sales presentation to, you know, 500 people and your manager is sitting at the front table, you know, keeping an eye on how you're doing the presentation. It can bring up nervousness, but you've just got to perform at that point. So there are times when you just have to go ahead and do that. 
But if you have the luxury to be still and be with yourself for a while, the more attention you can give to that bare experience of fear, the, the more palatable the experience becomes. And that's really what starts to decondition the fear response. If we can be okay with feeling the fear, it really starts to lose a lot of its charge. Fear becomes not such a big deal. And to tell you the truth, the aim in our meditation practice is to develop a degree of spaciousness and a degree of equanimity that fear can arise and be present and we literally don't care whether it's there or not. That's the degree of equanimity that we want to find through our meditation practice. And it's not to say that we can find that in every situation then for the rest of our lives, but we want to know that that's possible. We want to know, and usually it's through our meditation practice or through an experience where we feel you know, pretty strong and centered, that fear can be there and we really don't care. It's fine for it to be there. Just as good for it to be there as if it weren't there. Yeah. Well, good question. Is that cur- the question is, is that courage? I think it takes courage to let the fear be there with that much openness. So courage is kind of the other side of this fearlessness or opening to fear. A lot of courage is required. Rick? Yeah, there's, a, there's another thought I just had, which is that you know, a lot of times I will create situations that will put me in fear because I'm in a boring routine. I hear a few rumblings around the room. It sounds like it sounds like you're not the only one with that entertainment device. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, yeah. Well, it you know it's really interesting to look at this in relationship to a 45-minute period of meditation practice, and you kind of realize you know each of us has two choices. We can just be with the coming and going of the breath. But after a few breaths, that gets kind of boring, doesn't it? Or we can divert ourselves with all sorts of thoughts. And some of the thoughts are going to be positive, and some of them are going to be negative, and some of them are going to be exciting, and some of them are going to be fearful. But I think it's really interesting to tune into the fact we have an appetite for this stimulation. And it's our appetite for this stimulation through our own thinking that blocks us from resting in the peace of the moment. Because frankly, to tell you the truth, most of us find peace boring. (laughs) And so, honestly, we are all choosing moment after moment to be entertained by the flow of thoughts with their ups and downs and the positives and negatives than to rest in peace, because peace is always accessible. It's always here, and we turn away from it. It's a great insight. Yes? In the light of what you just said about getting to a point possibly where you, one wouldn't care whether mm-hmm. or not fear is present, mm-hmm. I was just thinking about the other thing you said about coming to a point of not being able to tolerate the fear mm-hmm. and having anger saying, mm-hmm. fear, out, mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. dramatic sort of sense. Would mm-hmm. you say that that's a, just a possible technique for mm-hmm. on the path towards getting to where you don't care whether fear is present or not? Yes. If you're stuck in a place that you find intolerable? Or? Yes. I basically see the anger as a kind of temporary um, way through that kind of breaks the grip. It's really important to break the grip when a pattern has really set in. And then once the grip is broken, um, you can, then you still need to go back and accept fear with that total equanimity. And that may take years. You know? I mean, for me, it was sometime after that before I could be that equanimous with fear. It was probably a couple of years later before I could be really equanimous with fear. But it broke, for me, it broke the grip. And so it was a temporary uh, help, helpful thing. Somebody had a hand up over here. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Which you have to deal with, which mm-hmm. of course creates a situation where you may be chronically 
fearful mm-hmm. to you, that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it isn't just you. You're not dealing with this in isolation. It involves another person. Okay, the question is about chronic fear or chronic anger and uh, a habitual pattern of fear in response to someone else who's chronically angry. This is a really common thing, certainly in our culture, maybe in all cultures, I don't know, but that we get afraid when someone is angry at us. That's a really habitual conditioned response. And in most cases, it's not necessary. Um, You know, for the most part in our culture, people are not going to hit us or uh, run into our car or shoot us because they're angry with us. So actually, there's nothing necessarily at threat when somebody gets angry at us. But we tend to respond with fear. Yes? There's one comment I wanted to make. Um, Often, the fear and the anger come Mm -hmm. when you feel like you're caught in the headlights. Mm -hmm. So a person who is passing judgment upon you Mm -hmm. in a very forceful Mm -hmm. uh, condemnation Mm -hmm. that's that's a different from feeling not that you're not recognized, it's just the mm-hmm. opposite. It's, yeah. it's as if you're being recognized, but you're only being seen with this True. kind of uh, glasses. So True. Yeah. yeah, so when uh, the anger is um, coming with a direct personal condemnation as well, I would, still, um, I would still suggest that the response of fear is a conditioned response that isn't necessary. And even if someone else thinks that I'm the worst person in the world, why do I need to be afraid of that possibility? If I'm, you know, if I know myself well, and I know my own motives and the reasons for my action, and um, their perception isn't true, then why can't I just rest, you know, confident in my own perception? If, um, if what they're saying does have some truth in it, why do I need to be afraid of seeing that truth? And then it gets into, you know, that starts to get into a whole lot of things about our self-image, how we want to appear a certain way to the world, and when someone doesn't see us that way, we're threatened. But I'd suggest that what's at a lot of the root of that kind of fear is a clinging to self-image. And it's not to say that that's easy to work through or to be free of, but I'd say, again, it's another kind of clinging that's underlying our fearful reaction. And that it doesn't, it doesn't have to be there. Even though it is for most of us, and, and I certainly include myself in that. But it can be worked with. It's workable. Okay, we've come to 9 o'clock, so uh, we'll close here. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on June 10, 1996. It is an offering of the Dharma 